Good morning. Hope you're doing well. It's good to see everyone. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you're a, if you're a note taker in our worship guide, we've intentionally left page 10 blank for you. You can take some notes there if you want. Um, but I want to welcome you to our, our second week in our identity series. How many of you have ever been listening to something on the radio? Does this mic sound, does it sound like we're in a boxed room? Can you hear me okay? It's okay? All right. It sounds funny from up here. But uh, how many of you have ever been listening to something on the radio and you hear the announcer say, let's pause 10 seconds for station identification? Anybody ever heard that? You younger ones probably never have because you don't listen to the radio. It's Spotify and Apple Music and all of that. But... Um, we had to suffer through commercials back in our day. Um, well, it's kind of what I like in our identity series, too. Um, we're, we're tuned into our regular scheduled preaching through the book of Matthew, and, and now we're going to press pause for three weeks for OVC identification. Um, we're, we're reminding ourselves who Oak Valley Church is and why she exists. And in short, as we were reminded of last week, and you'll see it printed on our worship guide, um, OVC exists to love God supremely, to love others sacrificially, and to live in the world distinctively. And while this is a, a three-week-long sort of a topical series, it's, it's not something where we're randomly taking a text from this book and a text from that book and, and trying to make it say what we, what we want it to say to make our point. Um, instead, what we're doing is intentionally taking you back to a book that we've already taught expositionally through so that you'll have some kind of context to grab hold of, and we want to look deeper into Hebrews um, about what the author of Hebrews has to say about God, about his children, and about his church. Um, and if you'll remember, we should have some pretty good context in Hebrews. We spent about 29 weeks in it, going through it. Uh, we finished it up last August, um, so a little over a year ago. But uh, last week, Pastor Jimmy did a pretty, pretty sweeping overview of, of Hebrews. Um, I think we touched on just about a verse or a section of almost all of the first nine chapters, and all throughout that we were examining what it meant to, what it means to love God supremely, and he pointed us to the supreme beauty and worth and glory of the triune God. He made a couple of statements. He stated that the radiance of the holiness of God is his glory, and that his holiness Glory, beauty, and worth, they, they fill all of creation and cannot be contained, can't be silenced, and cannot be hidden. Um, and God in his holiness, and we just read of this a minute ago, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, purified us of our sins through Christ. Christ, the one who took on flesh, who condescended, um, made propitiation for our sins by offering the sacrifice as the faithful high priest, and being the sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And he died a death that cannot be overcome by the unrighteous. He destroyed Satan's limited power over death. And in all of this, God has made his love known to us in Christ. And uh, Pastor Jimmy pointed us back to this, that the grounding, okay, or the foundation of the depths of our love back to God and for God hinge on us seeing his beauty and us seeing his glory and seeing his worth. Because when we do, our, our response will be that we will love him back uh, supremely. And then today, 
flowing out of us loving God supremely, we're going to look at loving others sacrificially. And I want to remind you of, of some of the theological context and the doctrinal context that leads up to our verses today, because I really want to make sure that even if we just spend a brief time in it, that we understand this, this principle. Um, correct living flows out of correct believing, okay? Or, or practice, our practice flows out of our theology, or doctrine leads to deeds. However you want to look at it or think about it, that's, that's the order of how it works. Um, so we want to make sure we understand some of the, the theological con- context here. But the author of Hebrews, um, he spends the first couple of chapters, he, he points us to the Son of God, who is the heir of all things, the one whom the whole world was created through, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He points us to the Son of God, who is the one who upholds all of his creation by the word of his power. He points to points us to Christ, who is the one who made purification for sins. And then the writer goes on to exhort his readers to pay closer attention to these truths. Don't neglect them. Pay closer attention to them. And don't neglect such a great salvation. And he reminds them that Christ, who is the founder of their salvation, and the one who is sanctifying them, is their brother. And they are children of God. And then he continues, and he goes on to show them that Christ took on flesh and he tasted death to destroy the devil and to deliver his people who had been in lifelong uh, slavery to sin. And then finally, at the end of chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews points to the fact that Christ became a merciful high priest, a faithful high priest, um, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And, And for the rest of the book of Hebrews, he is pointing to Christ as the faithful high priest and Uh, the one who made propitiation for sins. And so chapter 3 begins with, um, if you look there, um, in fact, we're going to back up a little bit and look at verse 12. Um, But if you look at the 10th verse there and the 7th verse, okay, you see this word that begins, therefore. And in other words, refer back to what I've just said as the basis of what I'm going to say. Okay, so he, he points to Christ as the better Moses in this section. Um, the one who was faithful over God's house and not simply as a servant, but the son. And he reminds the Hebrews that they're in this house also if indeed they hold fast to, this, uh, to Christ and their confession of faith and, and hope in him. Um, let's read our text from today. We're going to begin in... Like I said, Hebrews thirteen verse or Hebrews three verse twelve. We're going to read down through nineteen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as the day is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those that hardened and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter 
because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are thankful for your word and how it instructs and teaches and exhorts, challenges, cuts, heals. Father, remind us this morning that it is a living word, active and breathing and cuts and penetrates to the vision of our souls and joints and marrow and Father, would you open our eyes and hearts to it this morning? Would you open our ears to hear it for what it is? And would you work in us by your spirit as you do so? In Christ's name, amen. So the author begins here in verse 12. And he's telling the Hebrews, and by extension, he's also telling us to take care. In other words, take caution, look at, see, Observe, show some concern. This is important. And this is something that's going to take work. We have to take care to do it. It'll take a conscious, focused effort on their parts and on our parts. And the reason they're told to take care, to have caution, is because there's, there's something dangerous that awaits them that will be a detriment to them if they don't take caution. And what's the danger? Look there in verse 12. The danger is that they will have an evil, unbelieving heart that causes them to turn away and forsake God, and they're in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And these things will lead them, like the Israelites who were in the wilderness in verse 19, they'll lead them to where they're unable to enter because of their unbelief. So how are we to take care? How are they to take care Well, the answer is to show love for one another by exhorting one another. Verse 13, you see there, it says, exhort one another. I want to give you kind of the thesis of my thinking as I've been studying through this this week. Um, We're talking about loving loving others sacrificially. Um, We could go a a lot of different directions with that. I could give you a list of things you could do to show love to one another. And you could throw those on your refrigerator and treat them like a checklist and make sure you do them day by day, but ultimately maybe still missing the point. Um, we're going to get to this later in our next section of, of Scripture, but when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, but I think the overarching theological truth of this, this section we're looking at today in Hebrews is to draw near to God, is to draw near to Him, or to use our words from last week, to love God supremely. And then there's a lot of different exhortations, there's a lot of different applications that flow from it. Um, But I think the main one is to draw near to God. He is our faithful high priest. There's your theological context, he's our faithful high priest, and then our applicational context is draw near to God. One of the other exhortations that we find in applications is that indeed we are to love one another sacrificially. And as I've been studying through and thinking through the text this week, I cannot think of another way to show sacrificial love to one another, like no greater way than to point them to Christ. To do whatever is necessary to help them not fall away. 
to do whatever is necessary to help them guard against an unbelieving heart, to do whatever we can to uh, make sure that, that they don't fall into the deceitfulness of sin. And we do that by exhorting one another. So when we talk about exhorting one another today, and I think that is how we love each other sacrificially, we're to encourage, urge, beg, counsel, appeal, comfort, call alongside. All of those are good translations for exhorting one another. And this is how we guard against an evil, unbelieving heart that's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. To what end? Well, to believe. And if you look in verse 14 there, that we hold our original confidence firm. We're going to talk about belief a little bit more in a minute, but we're to believe in the new and better promises that Christ brought about in the new covenant of his blood. That is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. Christ is our faithful high priest. He's come to bring about a new and better covenant. It's enacted on better promises. That is where our hope is. That's where our confidence is. Believe that he's made propitiation for sins once and for all. Believe that he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Believe that he is the only way to access the Father. Believe that his sacrifice is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe these things and have confidence in them. Again, I can't think of a more loving thing to do for a brother or sister in Christ than to encourage them to believe and to hold fast to their confidence in Christ. As we continue looking at the verse, we can ask the question, well, when are we to take care? How often are we to encourage and exhort one another? Verse 13 makes it pretty clear. Every day. Every day. This is something we have to be diligent in. In studying through this, I've been convicted in this. There's a lot more I could do every day for my brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's been good for me to be reminded that we can't be faithful in exhorting one another one day and then forget about it and take some time off and then pick it back up again when it's convenient for us. No, the exhortation to take care and encourage one another applies to every day. Now there's an implication here, and maybe you've already picked up on it. If we're to encourage one another every day, what does that mean? It means we have to be in each other's lives. Now, I don't think in order to fulfill this command that every single OVC OVC member has to contact every single OVC member every day. Okay, I don't think that's what it means, but I do think it means that in general, as a member of Oak Valley Church, that we should be in, in close contact with some of our members and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ at some level every day. Well, how long? might be the next question. How long do we have to take care of each other and to encourage one another? Again, the verse gives us the answer. As long as it's called today. And in studying through that, today just means this age that we're in right now. So as long as it is this age, in the scheme of God's perfect plan, okay, we're, we're living in this time of the, the already and the not yet. Christ has come. He has established his kingdom He's set it up, okay, but there's more to come. Through his, be- through his death, through his burial, through his des- resurrection, his kingdom is here, and that's the already, but he's going to return. Our gatherings have 
this past month have really driven that truth home. We've, we've studied that well. He is going to return. He's going to crush his enemies. He's going to deal with Satan and sin and death finally. He's going to judge all the peoples. We heard it in our catechism today. that He's going to judge some to eternal torment and separation from him. He's going to judge some to eternal life, worshiping him in all of his glory eternally. And those things are the not yet. They haven't come, but they're going to. And we're living in this moment, and let's face it, when you consider this moment, in between the already and the not yet, when you compare that to all of eternity, it really is just a moment, isn't it? It's a blip on the radar. But while we're living in this moment, um, we've been given a command. We've been given a mission to, to go in Christ's authority and to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations and to baptize and to, to teach them to obey and observe all that Christ has commanded. And it's precisely in this in-between time that we need faith and we need belief and we need hope and we need assurance of faith and we need exhortation and we need strength and we need love. Why do we need these things? Pretty simple. So that we make it to the end. And so that we exhort others to make it to the end. Our sharing in Christ, and we read this in verse 14, our sharing in Christ hinges on us holding this confidence, holding our original confidence firm to the end. And please hear me on this. We can't make it to the end without each other. I can't make it to the end without you. Like it or not, you can't make it to the end without me. That's the way that God has set it up. And that's because... Just like it was for Cain, um, sin is crouching at our door. Desires to rule over you. Desires to rule over me, but we're called to rule over it. And what is one way that we do that? We exhort one another. We exhort one another to look to Christ, who is the radiance and the glory of God. Well, the writer of Hebrews, he we're going to transition to our second section of text today. He, he continues to lay down this doctrinal and theological foundation that Christ is our great high priest, that he's brought about a newer and better covenant in his blood. In our main text today, and you can go ahead and turn there if you want, from Hebrews 10, we'll be in verses 19 through 25. This, this is coming at the end of a section of teaching that sort of begins in chapter 8. So all of chapter 8. All of chapter 9, most of chapter 10 are laying out this doctrinal teaching that the new covenant is being founded upon Jesus' high priesthood. In chapter 8, we read that he is our great high priest. He's seated at, the, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He is the true tabernacle, not built by the hands of man. And that as the great high priest, he's the mediator of a better and new covenant because that covenant is enacted on better promises than the old one. And the promise was that God would write his law directly in and on the hearts of his people, that he would make himself known to them inwardly through his spirit, and that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and that in Christ he would forgive them of their sin, and he would remember their sin no more. He would cast their sins as far as the east is to the west. Christ had come to make the Old Covenant obsolete. The Old Covenant, if you'll remember, had 
rituals and sacrifices and offerings. In these sacrifices, they were perpetual. They had to keep happening, okay, day after day, year after year. Um, yet they were still ineffective. They weren't lasting. The cleansing that took place in these sacrifices and offering was merely symbolic and external. The people's hearts and minds, they remained weak and they remained imperfect. And each day, or excuse me, each year, on the Day of Atonement, the Aaronic High Priest would uh, enter the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the room with the blood of the sacrifices. And the obvious conclusion that we can come to when we hear of this is that as long as the earthly temple stood, and as long as the old covenant was in place, and as long as the, the old sacrificial system was in effect, the people had no access to God. One person had access to God, and that was only for a brief moment. In one moment, one day of the year. And then we read these words in chapter 9, verse 11. Actually, flip, flip back in your Bible to there. I want, I want you to, to see this. Um, if you're one who doesn't mind taking notes in your Bible, circle it, underline it, star it, highlight it, put a heart by it, smiley face, whatever it is you like to do to draw your attention when you're reading through. But uh, highlight these four words, but when Christ appeared. Chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared. If you want to write, write another little note there, you can write Matthew 1.21 there. You should be really familiar with that text because we've pointed back to it nearly every week. But Matthew 1.21 says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. So when Christ appeared, he appeared to do what? To save his people from their sins. They had no access to God. But when Christ appeared, everything changed. The new covenant had come, the better one. He was and is the great high priest and, and the perfect temple, not made with human hands. And he did what no earthly high priest could do. He entered the holies of holies once, not for that year, but for all. He made an offering with the blood of a sacrifice, but it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was his blood. He offered the sacrifice, and he was the sacrifice. And his broken body and his poured out blood did not leave his people's minds and hearts weak and imperfect. Instead, through his blood, he purified the consciences of his people and he secured an eternal redemption for them in order that they might serve the living God. So see what changed here. But when Christ appeared, now God's people have access to him through Christ, their great high priest. If you're here this morning and you're his, you're, you're believing in those promises. You're holding firm to the, that confidence that we have in our high priest. Listen, he's redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has cast your sins away from him. He remembers them no more. He has perfected you. 
Be reminded he's still sanctifying and saving you, but he's perfected you for all time. He's removed the sting of death for you. He's given you an eternal inheritance, and he's going to appear a second time to save you if you are eagerly waiting for him. And with this as our context, this brings us to our section of text today. And from here all the way through the end of the book of Hebrews, now the author is laying down these practical exhortations on top of all of these doctrinal truths. Okay, he's, the doctrine he's laid forth is informing the deeds he's about to tell us about. In Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, again, we begin this section with the word therefore, and we know what it means, we know what to do with it. The author's saying, everything I've just told you is informing what I'm going to tell you. It's, it's another reminder that the, the flesh and blood of Jesus is what is giving them and us as believers the confidence to do what he's about to instruct us to do. And what does he tell them to do? Um, and we're going to break this down kind of in three things. And the first is this. He tells them, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God in verse 22. And this is, again... Be reminded, this is a huge change. Think of what we just talked about. The people had no access to God. Only the earthly high priest. One time a year, one occasion. But now notice the change. Now everyone, every believer, everyone who has faith in Christ, everyone who is a child of God is now told to draw near in confidence, and with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How can we do that? How could they do that? The answer is simple, the cross. And I'll kind of skip ahead in our Matthew series uh, a little bit here, but in Matthew 27, 50-51, we read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see the connection to verse 20 there? If you didn't look at it again. Our confidence to draw near to God comes by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So as the, as the, the actual physical veil, the curtain in the earthly temple was torn from top to bottom, so the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was torn for us affording to us the only means by which we have access to God. That restricted access of the Old Covenant was obliterated in a moment 
And now it is possible for you and I, men and women and boys and girls, through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, to make their way directly into the presence of God and to draw near to a holy God. How? Because he's holy and we've already confessed that we are not. We're sinful. Well, we're able to because our hearts were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies were washed with pure water through Christ's blood. And we're now afforded the opportunity to come to God. Though we are sinful, the blood of Christ covers us and makes a way. That's a, that is a massive change. No access to God, access to God in Christ. Please don't miss the importance of that full assurance of faith. But I do want to pause for a second here and acknowledge that to come to God confidently or to come to God with confidence is totally different than coming presumptuously, coming flippantly and coming haphazardly. We can't come to him in that way. We still need to remember that we're coming to a holy God. He will not tolerate our presumptuous or, or flippant worship. In fact, turn to, turn to page 7 on your worship guide because I'm singing this. The dots are connected in my mind this morning. I don't know that I have sung a more humbling verse. Look at verse 2. Keep in mind, we're talking about not coming flippantly or presumptuously with pride. Verse 2, and how deep the Father's love for us. Behold the man upon a cross, whose sin? My sin, upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear whose voice? My mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. And he goes on to say, I will not boast in anything. In other words, I can't boast in me. I'm called to draw near to God, but it's not in my confidence. It's in the confidence that we boast in Christ. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's his wounds that paid our ransom. That is our confidence. That is how we come and draw near to God. Don't do it flippantly or presumptuously. Don't do it in your own confidence. Do it in the confidence of Christ. The second exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives us is, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. And I want you to see the connection between this verse and chapter 3, verse 14 that we read a minute ago. 3.14, remember it told us that we were to hold our original confidence firm to the end. And here in verse 23 we read, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold on to the hope of God's promise in the new covenant firmly, without wavering, all the way to the end. How do we know we can? Well, because our, our confidence and our hope stem from God. And notice what it says about him. It says he's trustworthy. Look at it there. For he who promised is what? Faithful. We can trust him. So hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering to the end. 
And the third exhortation, and we'll spend the rest of our time in this, is that we are to consider how to stir one another up and to encourage one another. We've talked a lot about our commitment to God, that we're to draw near to Him, that we're to hold fast in this hope found in the new, pro- in the new promises and the new covenant. And we've talked a lot about the confidence that we have in Christ as our great high priest, the one who opened the way to God through his flesh. And now, in light of those things, we're going to see what commitment to the Christian community looks like. What does it look like to be committed to one another? What does it look like to love one another sacrificially? And as we do, I think you'll come to notice that no one who expresses to love Jesus can legitimately live in isolation from their brothers and sisters in Christ. If you claim to love Christ, you've been called to be in his family and to love his brothers and sisters and to love the children of God and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about it in our earthly families. Um, You know, if we isolated ourselves from our earthly families... We'd look at that and say, that's a problem, wouldn't we? If you have a family member who's isolated themselves from you, we'd say, something's wrong that needs to be addressed there. Well, the same thing is true to, to a far greater extent, honestly, when we think about our Christian family. We're to consider what it means to take care. Look there, um, connect verse 12 from chapter 3 to this. Let us consider and then take care. They come from the same, a similar Greek word, not the same, but, but they mean the same thing. They're to notice. It means to notice or to see or to look for. How many of you this morning when you got up, while you're getting ready or while you're driving here or while you're walking through the front doors uh, this morning, how many of you were thinking about the fact that you're going to see people this morning that you're going to have an opportunity to minister to? You're going to have an opportunity to speak to them and encourage them in a way that could be life-changing for them. How many of you thought about that you're going to see or talk to someone this morning that you're going to have an impact on? I know that some of you have. In fact, I know that most of you have because I see the way that you talk to each other. I see the way that you minister to each other week after week and, and day after day. And you don't do it just here. I hear about how you do it in our ladies' Baba group and our men's getting together on Monday mornings and in your connect groups at people's homes and as you serve together in the various ministries that we have. The way that you react and gather and encourage one another at our children's discipleship ministry. I see you doing this thing, these things outside of the walls as well. And on behalf of your pastors, thank you. It's a beautiful thing for us to see. But we understand that these kind of things don't happen apart from taking care or considering it carefully or thinking deeply about them or being aware of them and looking for those opportunities. And so we're, what are we to consider to do? What are we to take care to do? We're to stir one another up. Now, uh, the word here is actually a negative word. Okay. Um, think about what's the one thing you don't want to do to a hornet's nest? You don't want to stir it up. You want to leave it alone. But the word here is store it up. If you have the King James, it says to provoke one another. 
generally when we think about provoking, that's a negative word. Our children like to provoke each other sometimes, and it's not a good thing. Okay? If you have the NIV, it's translated spur one another. As I was studying through it this week, I'm thinking about Booney and his cowboy boots. I wonder if one day he's going to walk in here with some spurs on. If he does, I don't want him to spur me. I think I could outrun him, but, um, but this is a strong word here. And I don't know about you, but I don't look forward to being provoked or spurred. And that's why we really need to take care and to consider and to know one another so that we're aware of what it will take to, in a particular individual's life, what it will take to stir them up or spur them along in a way that we are a help to them, not a detriment. Because we're all a little different. We all respond differently to different spurrings or levels of spurrings or provocations or whatever it may be. And so we respond to them a little bit differently and we got to be careful that the way we deal with people, we don't exasperate them, but we encourage them. I think we can all agree, those who are parents in here, that's probably one of the hardest things to do as parents, especially if you have multiple children. How can I raise and exhort and counsel and discipline my child in a way that I'm a help to them rather than a hindrance? My parents are here this morning. If you ask them, they'd say they had to deal with me and my brother a little differently. We weren't the same people. He needed stiffer switches than I needed. (laughs) He needed them more often, although I still needed my fair share. But they wouldn't have known that apart from knowing us deeply. So we've got to know our children deeply, how how we can be a catalyst for growth in their lives and not exasperate them. And it's like that with the church as well. We have to to know our brothers and sisters in Christ, to understand what encourages them and what, at, what exasperates them. Because we want to build up. We don't want to tear down. Um, we want to mend. We don't want to cut. Or if we do cut, we want to be quick to mend. The Greek word here is the same word used for, for, the same word that they use here in the Greek for stir up is the same exact word we find in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. If you'll remember, um, Paul and Barnabas were there. Um, they're in Antioch, but they're getting ready to leave. And they're going to go and kind of go on a tour and check back through the places that they had been and ministered in. And they're considering, okay, who are we going to take with us? Well, Barnabas had one thought. Paul had another. And um, it says that their that they're stir-up, okay, or their spurring or their provoking turned into a sharp disagreement. Same word in the Greek. Okay, we can use it to provoke to good. We can use it sharply to spur for good, or we can use it to cause great disagreement. Um, so you can either spur someone on to life, or you can spur someone to death. And we want to we turn people to life. Now, I want to be careful because I, I don't want to scare you away from exhorting someone for the fear of spurring them negatively, okay? But also, honestly, you don't have an option. As a believer, you don't have an option to avoid exhorting or being exhorted. You're not above it. You're not beyond it. It's commanded all over Scripture, and it's commanded to every believer. What I'm simply asking you to do is to know one another 
and to consider, to take care, to ponder, to dwell upon how you can exhort some way, someone in a way that encourages them, stirs them on to love and good works, not towards dejection and a desire to pull away from the church. Quick note to the ones being exhorted, because we're talking about exhorting one another, but that means someone's being exhorted as well. Well, quick note to you, be patient. <laughs> Understand that we are not perfect. The one exhorting you is not above reproach. And at times, we're going to do it in a way that's wrong. We're going to cut a little bit. Most of the time, it's very unintentional. So what can you do as the one being exhorted? Be patient. You also take care and consider the motive that the person has in coming to you. Extend grace if something that was done that was a little less tactful than you think it should have been, or it maybe was a little bit harsh or matter of fact. Overlook or look beyond the way the exhortation was delivered, and as much as it depends on you, choose to receive that exhortation in a way that you allow it to spur you along, not to cause a sharp disagreement. As a coach, we say it to our players all the time. Don't listen to how I'm saying it. Listen to what I'm saying. Tend to get a little bit loud sometimes. So hear through the tone and hear the message. Well, what are we to stir one another up to? It's pretty clear here. We're to stir one another up to love and to good works. And we definitely need to define love. We've defined love in here before. Um, because I think we can all agree that much of what the world labels as love these days really isn't love at all. But rather, oftentimes, what love is defined as in the world is this self-constructed, mushy, feelings-based, shallow-minded, ever-changing desire that we have, lust that we have, and we've labeled it as love, but it's really not. In our society, loves to talk about love, and we love to talk about what we love, we say we love everything from our moms who birthed us to the Sour Patch Kids we just had for a snack. I mean, we, we take the word love and we apply it to everything. We have spread that word so thin. I think we've lost what its meaning is a lot of times if we don't think about it. And sadly, if we're honest, when we look at the, the state of many of today's churches and parachurch organizations and denominations, what they're labeling as love or loving, oftentimes it's way closer to the world's definition than it is to the word's definition. But the word here that we're to stir one another up to love is agape. And I'm, I'm going to recycle an old definition I used a couple years ago from Colossians 1, but agape is a pure, willful, selfless, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. It's not merely born out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but it's, it's, agape love is born out of the will, and it's a choice. It requires faithfulness and commitment and sacrifice, and all along the way, we're not expecting anything in return for it. And our desire here at OVC is that we as a church are known for our agape love, that we consider what it means to be known for the love, the sacrificial love we have for one another. And that's because, number one, we've been commanded. We looked at it last week in 
the, the greatest commandment and the first is this, that you're to love the Lord your God with all your soul and heart and mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're commanded to do it. But we also remember from John 13, 34 and 35 that, again, we've been commanded. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, in other words, there's a watching world, lost, don't know Christ, don't know the definition of love. And by this, your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're to love one another with a sacrificial agape love. And, and coupled with this love is good works, or good deeds. And the word translated here, um, it, it carries the word beautiful with it and attractive. Um, I was reading something the other day like, it's the difference between, okay, this is a good apple and this is a beautiful apple. Okay, like, so we're not talking about just works that would come to expect anyone to do commonly. We're talking about beautiful works or deeds that are attractive to others. They're the kind of deeds that people will look at us and know that we are disciples of Christ. And none of this can be done apart from gathering. The means by which we are to provoke one another to love and good works is that we are to Look at the next part of the verse. We are to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. So obviously here with the Hebrews, some were in the habit of not meeting. Could have been by laziness, could have been by fear of persecution, could have been by whatever. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is don't be like them. Whatever their reason is, don't be like them. Because you can't encourage, and you can't exhort, and you can't love, and you can't stir up to good deeds when you're not together. And I think there's a primary scope here when he talks about gathering, and I think there's a secondary scope. The primary is what we're doing right now. The Sunday morning gathering of the church. It's the primary thing he's pointing to here. But the secondary is our actions and interactions outside of this Sunday morning gathering. We see that in Acts 2, 42 through 47. You don't have to turn there, but think about what they were doing. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were in fellowship with one another. They were breaking bread together. They were praying. Um, signs and wonders would be done, doing, being done through them. They were together. They had all things in common. They were selling possessions and belongings and, um, and, and meeting one another's needs as there was a need. And, and they were attending the temple. So there was the formal part. They were attending the temple together. And they were, but they were also breaking bread in their homes. They were receiving food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. In other words, the people were seeing the love and good works they had for one another. And, uh, and the Lord was, because of this, was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So here in Acts, we see that there's many different types of gatherings and times. There's different levels of formalities. And it needs to be so with us at Oak Valley Church as well. And, and as I explained earlier, I, you guys do a great job with that. We're together in small group settings. We share meals. We serve together. We learn together. We disciple one another. We counsel one another. We encourage one another. But the less formal things, okay, they come in addition to the formal things. 
Don't trade off one for another. I've been in churches, and I've only been in one other one than this one, so you can figure out where it was, but I've been in churches where I saw people that would attend their small group, or they'd attend their youth group, or they'd attend their singles group. They'd get together for dinner and study the Bible. Never saw them on Sunday mornings. Never saw them in the regular Sunday morning gathering together. And it's not healthy. Because the prime way that we not neglect to meet together is be here on Sunday mornings. But we also understand that the secondary way is that we're involved in, our, in the lives of our brothers and sisters outside of this gathering as well. And listen, we as, we as pastors, we know that there's going to be times that you're not going to be here at OVC on a Sunday morning. And please hear my heart in this. I, I don't want it to be like we're, I don't want it to be heavy and condemning. Okay, but I think we need to understand that there's a difference between being necessarily absent and being needlessly absent. Necessarily means it can't be helped. I'm not going to go through all what all those scenarios are of what the difference between necessary and needless are, but I do want to ask you this. Challenge yourself in those areas. Ask yourself, have you convinced yourself that it's okay to be needlessly absent? Well, if you have, that's not healthy. It's dangerous. Ask yourself, have you deceived yourself into thinking that a needless absence is really a necessary absence? I think we're probably more guilty of that. What you've thought to yourself is a necessary absence, if you looked at it, I think, honestly, you'd probably say, well, it really is needless that I've made it feel necessary. I want you to examine yourself in these areas. Why? Well, we said it earlier. To make it to the end, I need you. And you need me. And you need each other. We need you here and you need to be here. And I can say that unashamedly because Scripture says it. Because we all need help. We are sinful people in need of encouragement, in need of being spurred along. And by not being here, you are depriving yourself of the help that you need. Beyond that, by not being here, you're providing others of the help that you can provide them. It says it right there in the text. It doesn't say gather together so you can be spurred along and you can be shown love and you can receive encouragement. Though you do, okay, it says we're to consider to stir up one another. It means both parties have got to be present. You're to encourage and to get encouraged. You're to give and to receive. You're to give love and to get love. You're to, you're to give some spurring and get some spurring. You're to do good deeds and you're to have good deeds done for you and to you. And listen, when you're absent, for whatever reason, but when you're absent, everybody loses. Boone, he mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. 
When we talk about the word membership, it's not like the bowling club, okay? We're talking about a, a biological membership. This finger belongs to my body, and if I lose it, I'm dismembered. So when you're not here, we are missing a part of our body in a biological way. We need you here, and you need to be here. We can't afford to, to lose out on this because this age is coming to an end. A day is coming when Christ will return. Judgment's going to come. And we'll no longer have opportunities to do these things. That's why we're exhorted. As long as it is called today, do it every day. Exhort one another to love and to good works. You can't wait to the end to do it because when the end gets here, it's too late. So in closing, how do we love others sacrificially? We take care, meaning don't be lazy. Don't take the easy way out. Instead, sacrifice your time, sacrifice your resources, sacrifice your efforts, sacrifice your pride to consider how you can love one another by pointing each other to Christ, who is the great high priest, who's the only one through which you can draw near to a holy God. Go out of your way while we're living in this age, between the already and the not yet, go out of your way to exhort one another to love and the good works, to hold fast to the original confidence without wavering. Exhort one another to find hope in the promises of God found in the new covenant in Christ's blood and get in the lives of people so that you can exhort them to love and to good works and to end on the words of Matthew 5.16 we're to exhort one another to love and to good works so that they, a watching world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we've been encouraged and exhorted and cut and challenged and mended and healed, hopefully all of these things by your word, can't get away from so many times in scripture we see these three words paired together faith and hope and love and this morning we see it as well faith that we're to trust in you and that we're to draw near to you with a fullness of faith through your son our great high priest and that in hope We're to come with you, come to you with confidence and boast in Christ and not ourselves because of the new covenant and his blood. And love. And we're to love you supremely. And we're to love others. And that in loving others, even thinking forward to next week, we want them to see our good works and to see our love for one another and to see past us and that they would give glory to 
your Father, to our Father who is in heaven. And they would turn from their sins and place their faith and hope and trust in you. Father, we confess this morning that these things are not easy to do. We can only do them in the power of your Spirit. And we can only do them as we draw near to you through Christ's blood. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.